My lord, what a shock. All I can say is expect the unexpected with One Piece. Today we'll be talking about chapter 1056, and this chapter was not what I expected, but it felt right and real, and I think right now, Oda truly made the Gomu chapter super iconic. I wouldn't necessarily this chapter was better than 1054 and 1055, but 1056 had me going wild on my live reaction stream. I think I'm gonna need to invest in a jaw replacement by the end of One Piece, because Oda has me jaw dropped so often now. There was one specific page that had me just forget everything else about this chapter, and if you're listening to this, then you probably already know what page I'm talking about. That being said, welcome to the Last Saga podcast with your host Parvision, where I do chapter analysis every week whenever a new chapter of One Piece is released. My main content is my YouTube channel, Parvision, where I make fun One Piece theories and occasionally I'll show up in other One Piece creator channels. This week for chapter 1056, I made a cameo appearance with Sai, another YouTube content creator like me, but he covers the spoilers and leaks of the latest One Piece news, but also BDA Law invited me onto his channel. One of my favorite One Piece creators in the community, along with Ragnar, the man with the voice imbued with Conqueror's hockey. And so if you haven't heard of me yet, and you're new to my channel, the way I view the world is by making connections. So let me connect you to my vision, the Par vision. I sort of don't like talking about chapters in the order we read it in, but this chapter, I don't know which way to go. That one page literally gave me amnesia about what happened everywhere else in the chapter because I was so captivated by it. Even New York Times was in on the hype. I don't know why I'm talking about it so secretive, but yeah, Oda is 100% Yakuza level, like owns New York Times or something. So for those who don't know what I'm talking about, there's a word game that went viral at the beginning of 2022 called Wordle. It's a five letter guessing game that refreshes every day and the word of the day for august 5th 2022 is buggy the day i read the chapter 1056 somehow connected with wordle i was so mind blown and what's even crazier is what i find out from sai is that the first week of august is also official clown week which is like crazy what kind of planning does oda have to do for these chapters but so anyways, let's jump into chapter 1056 titled Cross Guild. The first hype stop for me was the cover story. Just seeing Katakuri put a smile on my face, but then it quickly dissolved once I realized the predicament that this puts Katakuri and Oven in. See, in this cover story, they aren't the main characters. This is Jerma's cold-blooded voyage mini-series. So having Katakuri and Oven facing off with the Vinsmoke siblings where Jerma is the main character kind of feels like a setup for an upsetting result where Katakuri somehow loses here. And I'm not not talking about in the sense where he actually loses a fight, but at some point, Jerma's probably going to escape, which is slow key and L for Katakuri. I don't want to see that happen, but the Vinsmokes have surprised me in these cover stories. I mean, one assumption we kind of need to make is that they beat Cracker somehow, since Cracker was guarding the mirror to Whole Cake Island, and then we see Vinsmokes walking through that corridor that looked like where Cracker was located. And also, real quick, with the caption for the cover story, it says Katakuri and Oven Spring into action. No, they didn't. They literally were so late. But I just wanted to point this out because this chapter in general is going to be super important to see what the official translations say on Sunday. So there will be some things I won't cover in as much detail today, and I'll discuss that on a future stream or video. 
So we start the chapter with Shinobu and Raizo drained out of their nutrients and essentially mummified. Shinobu being included is really odd to me because we didn't see this happen to her in the fight with Ryokugu, but I joked about it last week on livestream that Ryokugu sucked the wrong person. And if he did that to Shinobu, he'd end up getting the original Shinobu back and that's exactly what happened. I can't believe a meme theory of mine actually happened. But what's funnier is that maybe Raizo will get a visual update too and no one will recognize him. Honestly, Ryokugu Ryokugu should change careers if we see Raizo in Giga Chad mode after all of this. Like right now, I'm so ready for Raizo to show up looking like Kakashi or Sasuke. That would be insane to see. So after this part, we find out that Okobore Town was reduced to ashes because the citizens accepted the blame for the nine scabbards. Then we get this really wholesome moment where Suru proclaims that she wants to be by Kinemon's side always, and Kinemon is infatuated by her proclamation. The kind of love that lasts beyond time. It warms my heart to see, and when you think about how much struggle and turmoil Tsuru went through during the 20 years without Kinemon, honestly, if Tsuru was a combatant, then her willpower and hockey would be insane. These two characters are the epitome of loyalty and resolve. Both of them have demonstrated some of the highest degrees of each quality in the story in my opinion, through their separate storylines. Like I mean, think about it, Suru went through not just 20 years without Kinemon, but 20 years in a country underneath Kaido's regime. This was definitely a wholesome moment to just let sink in. But then we switch gears to a very interesting part of the chapter, which is surrounded by Carrot and controversy. To summarize what happens, she pops up and Neko and Inu hit her with the big news in that they declare that she will become the next ruler of Mokomo Dukedom. I think just like my response of surprise, Kara reflects that and is like, yeah, sure, uh-huh, and then, wait, what? Neko and Inu go on to proclaim that she has demonstrated a dependability that would qualify her to lead the next generation of minks, and I was like, what dependability? There surely are stronger, more capable people, right? And then those stronger, more capable people were like, nah, we'll back you up, Carrot. And then Neko and Inu doubled down even more and said, Pedro's will lives on more in you than it does in anyone else. We leave Zoe to you youngsters. And scene. Yep, that's exactly how it went. And clearly, after reading it through the first time, I was carried by my initial reaction. And that's the thing. Sometimes our initial reaction to something isn't the best response. It's always important to take a step back and reflect. So in this situation, I have now talked to several people about this scene who are extremely confused by the developments. And here's my take on this. Is she the most capable or qualified mink in my opinion? No. She and Wanda, even with Sulong, could not defend against against Pero Sparrow properly, and so to hand the dukedom down to her feels weird because when I think about the rulers of the minks, I kind of think of them leading with the strongest mink member. I mean, the one before Neko and Inu was Genghis Ban, which is like a reference to Genghis Khan, one of the most prolific conquerors in the world. And in my opinion, Neko and Inu definitely continued that precedent. With that in mind, do I understand what Neko and Inu are saying? Yes. Something we do have to remember is that they are from the Roger Pirate era, and Pedro's will at the end of the day was to bring the new dawn. So for the old generation to continue to carry the torch into the horizon isn't how the story has been playing out. We're seeing the old generation from Roger, Shanks, Rayleigh, Whitebeard, Odin, and now Neko and Inu carrying this trend of letting the future create the future. Something our world needs a little bit more of. And with all of this in mind again, 
when we really think of what Pedro's will was, he sacrificed his life for the dawn of the new world because he believed that Luffy and the crew would be the ones to finally bring the dawn to the horizon. The horizon that he may not have made it to considering he sacrificed most of his life due to his run-in with Big Mom. Which brings another major point. In order to pursue the dawn, Pedro left Zoe and created a pirate crew for something he believed in. He wasn't afraid of the outside world and tackled it head on. That is something that Carrot did, but hits a lot harder in reflection considering Neko and Inu through unknown circumstances did exactly that. They stowed away on Whitebeard's ship and also sailed with Roger. And prior to all of that, they ended up on Wano by some twist of fate. And to do this from what we understood from the previous Duke, Genghis Bon, they just vanished. And Carrot recreated that similar situation by stowing away on Luffy's ship without alerting her friends and family back on Zoe. In order to pursue her will, like Pedro, and probably like Inu and Neko, and maybe even the Duke before them, Carrot overcame the safety of her bubble on Zoe and challenged the world to push towards the new dawn. And I think that does ultimately make her the best candidate for ruling the dukedom now. The minks have a mysterious agenda behind them in supporting the Kozuki-like brothers while also anticipating the dawn of the new world. From what we can gather, for the past 800 years, they have been waiting for this. So anyone who is trying to bring it to fruition is a big deal. On top of that, the dukedom under Neko and Inu was divided, whereas now it'll be under one white rabbit mink, which I think itself is incredibly important considering the minks gather their power from the moon. This is the obvious reference to Kaguya, and that brings us to the last point here, which is that now that we know Zunisha is tied to Pluton heavily, because while there may be other options, Zunisha has been equated to being the opener of Wano. And that's important because Odin wanted to open up Wano for Joy Boy because it was apparently crucial for the Void Century or to bring the new dawn, which means Pluton is really crucial for Joy Boy, making Zunisha also important. Whenever Zunisha is needed in the future, we are going to need the Minx to be united and armed and strengthened in preparation to aid Luffy when the time necessitates it. The new dukedom under Carrot will become one of the strongest forces for Luffy to turn the world upside down, and as such, wrapping all the way back around, the old has now passed on the torch to the new to help further bring the dawn, which will take extreme resolve. With that in mind, Carrot is probably going to return as a top tier fighter, and I hope more minks follow that line of strength instead of Beppo. And all offense towards Beppo, until Oda makes me eat these words, which I hope he does because I want to like Beppo. But so that takes us to another significant part of the chapter, where we get the 180 from Sukiyaki. Originally, he said he wasn't going to tell anyone of his survival, but we have him talking to Momo and Hiori and telling them, and truthfully, this was always the better choice amongst the choices laid out. It was more awkward that he started out with his original plan in mind, but whatever bonked him on the head, good job for that to give him this revelation. And then we find out that the scabbards high key already kind of could tell despite technically the scabbards only probably meeting Sukiyaki one time because Odin only met Sukiyaki one time after reclaiming Kuri and meeting his father for the last time Sukiyaki was quote alive. Awkward enough, Kinemon was the only person who was shocked of course. Throwback to his shocked face when it came down to his masterful plan on Onigashima being thwarted but then being recovered in Denjiro's eyes. But everyone else knew that he was Cap'n. And so Kinemon obviously was straight dumbfounded, like literally dumbfounded at these outcomes. 
But so then we get a whole page of what I'm assuming to be about Pluton. Very clearly the Straw Hats are talking about Pluton and we'll get to that, but Tsukiyaki says he wants to shed some light on things for the Scabbards, and I can only assume it would be about Pluton, which is what Odin wanted to unleash by opening the borders, and Tsukiyaki will probably divulge what was written on the Poneglyphs, as these were clues towards what Odin was pursuing by leaving Wano, which left the Scabbards in dire straits afterwards. But that being said, I'm honestly not too sure what to make of the interaction between the Straw Hats and Pluton. For one, I feel that between Robin and Frankie, they should be able to piece together what Pluton actually is. I say that because the Poneglyph and Arabasta should have told Robin the power that Pluton held, like the actual power, not the rumored one to destroy an island, similar to how Poseidon could be said to be able to sink the world. But the real power is to control the Sea Kings, which Robin learned on the Poneglyph. And then Frankie should have the counter Pluton blueprints memorized, so not really sure how much longer Oda will blue ball us on Pluton, but it seems like it's going to be a while longer because even Luffy, who is now known to be Joy Boy, who this Pluton is for, doesn't really care much for it. Which is both fitting and low-key frustrating because we are going into the last saga, and I'm sure more people want to learn more things as soon as possible, but I'm sure Oda has the master plan in store. And this might all fit my Pluton theory to be honest, which I'll aim to get out during the break week. And so changing gears a little bit but continuing slightly on the Pluton topic, we get a development that Shinobu is now beautified, which was my meme theory from the previous chapter coming true. But more importantly, she says this crazy line. She says, did you say that mature ladies are alluring ancient weapons? And one, we're talking about ancient weapons. Any line when ancient weapons is mentioned is important to me. And having Shinobu of all people talk about ancient weapons just gave me whiplash. What's crazy about this line is that there was a background thought I had a few weeks ago, and I'm sure others had this at some point, that maybe the ancient weapons were all just the princesses from the Void Century. The primary example of Shirahoshi being a princess and eventually queen would support that idea. And then the popular theory that Vivi is Uranus and she would be another princess queen to support this theory could also make sense too. And maybe Pluton is just a ship, or maybe it's sentient, or maybe it was built or controlled by a princess queen. It's very interesting and goes back to the idea that I am a broken record about. Whatever the ancient weapons are, they won't ever be traditional weapons in my mind. They will be things that can be used for good or evil, and primarily probably for good. The line again rings from chapter 192 when Pluton was first mentioned, and this is what is said by Mrs. Doublefinger just the page later. Whatever its original purpose, anything that can be used to kill people is a weapon. And that is true for our world too. Unfortunately, a lot of good things were put in the hands of humans and used for evil. The best and greatest example of this will always be dynamite. Dynamite, while explosive and dangerous and typically used for warfare, was originally invented for tunneling through mountains for railroads. Because humans saw the destructive capabilities, it was purchased and used for decimating people in the context of war. And through inventor's guilt, that creator, Alfred Nobel, used all the earnings he got from various purchasers of dynamite to then begin the Nobel Prize Foundation that you all probably hear about here and there to encourage innovation around the world. And he did this in hopes that his name would find a better legacy than the one he had while he was alive. Alfred Nobel kind of reminds me of Roger in a way, in the sense that he couldn't accomplish what he wanted to while he was alive and set in motion a huge movement that would hopefully overturn and create the future that they each wish they had saw within their lifetimes.
And to tie this all back into the chapter, ladies are alluring ancient weapons? Yeah, 100%. If I could think of something so innocent but deadly, it's women. Women can just kill by breathing, and that's no exaggeration. That's how powerful they are. Heck, if some women stop breathing, you know, and that's actually the case if we look back in some of our history. I mean, I've always felt that though Oda is probably shying away from the overall relationship stuff, I have a feeling that there will be some form of romance, at least within the void century, that will shake things up. It just makes sense to me, and on top of that, the first arc and the pilot for the entire series was Romance Dawn. Romance having probably multiple meanings here, but love is definitely in the air in that context in my opinion. With that in mind, we can skip a little bit. By now I've talked about Tama a lot with other creators. If you guys want me to cover more of all the scenes within the podcast, let me know in the Discord or comments on my YouTube or on Twitter. I'm just cutting it for time's sake. There's no way you'd want to listen to me for this long about the chapter, to be honest, right? And wait, did I say we were going to skip and switch gears? Just kidding, we hit another W for me. Despite the disdain for Caribou, we get the parallel from Poseidon in chapter 650 with King Neptune actually happening, where yet again, Caribou is overhearing a conversation about Pluton, another ancient weapon, and how there's a certain someone who would love to hear about this. Now I've talked about the options for this potential person at length in my Caribou video from not too long ago, the main choices being Blackbeard or a new entity, consider it can't be Big Mom or Kaido or Doflamingo at this point, but recently through a conversation with Roger's base, I started warming up to the idea that maybe through some plot twists, Caribou is a bad apple in the Revolutionary Army. But I wasn't quite sold on it completely yet, and it made less sense for him to be related to Shanks also from my biased standpoint, but I'll talk more about this certain someone in a little bit. So we end up seeing Momonosuke adulting. Momo is full on shogun mode and you can kind of see his jaded countenance in dealing with his admiration, restoration, and responsibilities of a shogun. It's definitely heavy for an 8 year old and we are reminded of this situation even more in the next sequence where we finally see sparks of joy from his face and it's because he's calling out for Zoro to teach him sword techniques and finds that room where the straw hats should be is now empty. And he goes through the Straw Hats names in order of how they joined, calling out their names progressively, more panicked, all the way up to until he says Yamato. And then we find out from Hiyori and Toko that the Straw Hats said their goodbyes and left in the morning. And not only did they ghost Momo, it was also Kinemon. But Kinemon aside, though I feel for him, this really made my heart hurt for Momo. I don't know why, but this sent me into flashbacks of times when I was a child, probably at 8 years old, and I was in a foreign place and I lost my parents and family and felt so lost. I've talked to a few creators who had the same or similar heartstrings yanked at. Momo was yet again abandoned by a family that not only helped raise him to a certain extent from the dad talks that Luffy gave him or the training that Zoro provided or the love and compassion of a mother through Robin and Nami. Each and every straw hat was like a family member to Momo and being eight years old he already lost his father, lost his mother, and even his sister. And Kinemon struggled to be the father that Momo lost while coping with the reality of what their mission entailed and losing his wife. 
I get it though, the Straw Hats are pirates and all this sappy family stuff isn't their vibes. But for whatever reason, I was both sad and mad on Momo's behalf because though he is a leader of Wano, a man with responsibilities, in reality he's still an 8 year old boy who lost everything and is continuing to carry on like the Giga Chat he is. But it doesn't change the fact that I at least would have been a little bit more delicate with my approach here, which now takes us to the Straw Hats, and we see what they are doing while they left the capital and ghosted Momo. We see the monster captains arguing over the directions in which they will depart, ensuring that one, though they can't change that they are all in a bromance leaving on the same day, the least that they can control is that they will each choose different islands next. And that's where things get a bit interesting. We see Kid and Luffy both choose the middle option, while Law chooses the northeast option. And we get a little map of where they are going, but not the names of the islands that they are. But there's a few context clues outside of the manga that might help us determine these islands. We were given a map from a magazine, and if you're not aware, I don't hold the magazine as a reliable source of information for canon One Piece material, as I've been told that they are a third party company separate from the primary distributors of the manga or Oda Studio. But that being said, a map showed that there were three islands next to Wano. The one Law would be going to is Elbaf, the middle one that Kid would be going to is Pirate Island, and the last one that Luffy was going to wasn't labeled correctly, and I have to double check what it said. But those two connect with the road to Laugh Tale, and maybe we can figure out the third one from there. So the drop from Road to Laugh Tale that we got over the break month, where Oda said the last road Poneglyph could possibly be on Elbaf, Pirate Island, or Vera, which is super interesting to me because in the panel that Oda mentions Vera in chapter 228, we get the log from Noland, which says that he was sailing from Vera to the next island, and the direction that the log post took him in was north-northeast, which would put him on one of these islands. And if that were not enough, this separation in islands is kind of perfect. Elbaf is obviously important one for having the giants and a lot of lore and buffs for Usopp, but also theorized to be related to Shanks' territory. Then we have Pirate Island, which is Blackbeard's territory, and it's kind of fitting that Kid is going there. And the last one is Vera, which is connected to Nolan, which pushes my Nolan relevancy agenda, but also it was an island that was liberated by the Revolutionary Army, and maybe will connect to the Straw Hats through Sabo, and we'll get a fleshed out understanding of what happened at the reverie that we learned of through the news. But just skipping ahead a tad, looking at the entire chapter, it doesn't seem like the Straw Hats have read that news yet because I'd imagine that they would have much more of a visceral reaction to it all, which is weird because it's been another week since that news dropped. So have they really not checked all the news yet, like especially Robin? But anyways, it will be interesting to see what the next island holds in store for the last saga. Right now, it feels like if it were actually Vera, then this gives the Straw Hats a direct pipeline to hit all of the important islands after the first one so that we don't miss out on the important things. Which now brings us to a huge change of gears. I was cross-eyed, jaw-dropped in disbelief, but in pure amazement at this development, where very quickly Luffy flexes his Yonko status over Kid, Kid exclaims 
sense his upset at not Luffy being Yonko, but rather a buggy being Yonko. And with that, we get a huge reveal of the Cross Guild, where Buggy is on top and beneath him on the poster is Mihawk and Crocodile. Which I mean, if you want to get my full reaction to this, watch my live reaction on my VODs channel, or tune into my collab with Sai, or the one I did with BDA and Ragnar. Each time I gave a different perspective and added on to things because I really, really loved this development. To quickly run through this real quick, we see Luffy and Zoro show their disbelief that Crocodile and Mihawk are working under Buggy. Even Luffy is saying, how did a moron like Buggy end up doing this? But then we find out my favorite, absolute favorite development. This has to be one of my most favorite things in all of One Piece. We find out that Buggy pulled out the ultimate reverse Uno card on the Marines and has started to issue bounties on the Marines. Talk about flipping the world upside down. I mean, I said it before and I'll say it again. Buggy and Shanks are both carrying Roger's will and they are both aiming to flip the world upside down or at least bring us closer to it. This reverse bounty issuing made me light up so much. I mean, Come on, bounties on potentially the admirals? And we have Mihawk there? Bounties were always one of the coolest things in One Piece. And for Buggy to make this absolutely badass move, this is so Conqueror-like. This is probably the most Emperor or Yonko-like behavior in all of One Piece. All the other Yonko were keeping the balance with the world government until they were strong enough to overtake it all. And Buggy said, balance? World government? Nah, you step on my toes, I break your toes. The hunters have become the hunted. And this resonates so well with what Mihawk said when his island was being sieged, essentially saying it's been a long time since he himself was hunted, and he was more or less excited by the challenge. And now with that in our minds, what's really interesting is what we see in the poster that Oda seemed to show that Mihawk was scarred, and that in itself is massive. Like, who could possibly scar Mihawk? And whoever that is should be running from Zoro. And that's if they're even still alive. Maybe these bounties that Buggy has placed are the names of certain marines that made names for themselves in the war against the warlords. And honestly, there's hours of things that I could bring up here. And I brought up so many other things in those collab streams, but there were theories of Mihawk joining, but I have never imagined Crocodile. This is so cool for them to join the guild. Killed. But who is fronting the money for these bounties? The only real option here would be Buggy. But I don't think even with his reach, he's making enough money to be countering the Marines bounties at this level. I was thinking maybe a fourth person might be present in this cross guild and it's just hidden from our sight. The person below Buggy who's essentially the foundation for the financial backing here. And the person I'm thinking of that could be funding this all is actually Wapole. If you remember, I bring him up in my Godfather Shanks theory, but Wapole is actually a crucial keystone in the underworld right now, at least from what I gather. I say this because not only is he a king, but he is now a worldwide monopoly essentially on the toy industry, and the toy industry is strong even in our world. So having a vice grip on it is impressive, and also means he's rolling in the money to the point his fiance or wife's laugh is gold dig 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 dig. The funniest and most unique One Piece laugh in the verse.
On top of the toys, he also low-key has a monopoly on weapons too, because of his innovation through his devil fruit, which is Wapo Metal, which is super significant to the point even Frankie's General Frankie is made of Wapo Metal and is known for its adaptability and durability. So you know if it has Frankie's approval, it's crazy. That being said, the reason why I'm connecting Wapol to the Cross Guild is because of another interesting line we see in chapter 956, which is the same chapter where all the warlords are confronted with the system being abolished and the news being broken through Big News Morgan, which is important. The reason why it's important is that Big News Morgans was alerted of a fatality, which we know is King Cobra, an attempted murder, and presumably Vivi's disappearance there too, and the warlords' abolishment also. Cypher Pole tried to have have all of that stuff covered up and big news morgans gave him the big news fist of information and what we see at the tail end of the sequence is a message from king wapole followed by this relayed message that said sounds like he's got some leaked intel so given that all the other crazy news was already addressed by big news morgans and these are all the things we just learned of that leaked intel part is super interesting to me because these cross guild posters and bounties had to be printed and distributed and it must have come with the other their news right so that means big news morgans distributed the cross guild's agenda which already connects the two organizations but on top of that it's wapole that probably informed big news morgans and with his role as a king in the world government monopoly on toys and wapole metal he is probably aiding buggy and funding his bounty system and just going back to the bounty system I really like this for the fact that it's called a guild, the Cross Guild, and when I think of guilds, I think of ranked missions, which apparently Buggy's delivery service already had, considering Hyrudin was an S-tier mercenary, yet he wasn't all that strong from our perspective, but it might be because he completed several S-ranked missions, and with that in mind, it might be that rather than seeing Mihawk and Crocodile as allies or commanders under Buggy, it might be that Mihawk and Crocodile are the new star performers performers in Buggy's Circus Act. They are the new S-tier, if not God-tier mercenaries. I can't think of many missions that these two couldn't complete. And in the context that it might be apt to bring up now, we might have figured out an important missing clue discussed earlier, which was who was that certain someone that Caribou wanted to tell about the ancient weapons? It might have been Buggy all along. We have to remember that Buggy's reputation went nuclear during the time skip and as an warlord. And Caribou was a renowned rookie with the highest bounty of the new rookies in Sabaody after the time skip. So why would he even want to join under Luffy or Tomorrow Black. In terms of characters that should know about ancient weapons also, Buggy is one of them. Having been on Roger's ship, he is one of the few characters in the story that should know a lot about ancient weapons, actually more so than most others. And Buggy literally had a mercenary group that recruited strong pirate groups, and Buggy and Caribou are also the same genre of character in my opinion. So what I'm hypothesizing is that Buggy put out a mission to investigate Straw Hat Luffy's return to Sabaody, which was being broadcast to recruit actually strong pirates because the person behind it was Damaro Black. And so one of the ranked missions from Buggy was probably to figure out who this was, if not co capture Damaro Black because if it was Buggy assuming it was Luffy, then that might be how Caribou ended up in the situation he's in now. And so to wrap up this part, in general, I'm starting to like the theories that start connecting the dots and these are dots I'm liking a lot. 
With all that being said, we near the end of the chapter and we see a page that I'll skip from this review, but I'll talk about it briefly. And just really quickly acknowledging the end of the chapter where Yamato has finally decided to join Luffy while what seems like Yamato is taking one last look at Wano. But so anyways, backing up to the skip page, the reason why I'm skipping this page in this analysis is because the translations are so important to this page. Oda 100,000% left us with this wild goose chase searching for that guy marked by flames during the break week so that we think more about One Piece while there's no chapter release than we would if there were a chapter release. That's just classic Oda and that's what the genius is about Oda. And so even if you think there's a vanilla most logical answer into who that is, I truthfully don't think there is, especially with these translations. TCB noted that it could imply this man was marked by a burn or had a scar shaped like a fire, but even a man marked by flames could mean a tattoo or someone in my live stream translated the kanji multiple times and got back the phrasing scarred by the sun or scratched by fire. So that being the most important clue here, I want to wait to dive into that after getting more of an understanding of what we're talking about here. Reiterating, I am in no way slandering TCB and their translations. I just want more context myself. We are given several clues outside of that physical description. One being that apparently this person is a significant blockade towards getting the One Piece. This person also garners a very serious reaction from Law, a confused reaction from Robin, and it's someone that is new newsworthy apparently, but maybe not mentioned in the news yet, or simply someone that gains a lot of attention outside of the context we were given. I think quickly most people reach for Sabo or Aokiji, but both of them lack on the One Piece clue side of things. If you want to see the full set of possible options discussed in my live stream, check out the end of the VOD where I created a spreadsheet and I plan on discussing my probability outlook on the options during my next Voice of All Things stream. But that being said, my current two favorite options are your Rouge, the last important supernova that has the most mystery behind them that was actually shadowing Kid throughout the New World. From when Kid's alliance was crashed by Kaido to when he went to Big Mom's Island, Yerouge was either there or was there right after. And the other really cool option is Scopper Gabon, and I go into details why in my collab with Sai. Both of these people are definitely related in the goal of capturing the One Piece in my opinion, and there are ways that make the other context clues make sense too. With that, the last thing I do want to talk about is the cool situation with Killer. I think this page also gives way more foundation to the idea that Killer is probably Three-Eyed Tribe, the group of people that can read the Poneglyphs. I get this feeling because Killer was the one handed the road Poneglyph rubbing that Charity Man Law just generously handed out. But not only does Killer grab it, but we get three panels of this, and two of them show he's essentially reading it, which only makes sense if you are Robin, or from Ohara, or you're Kazuki, which Killer is neither of those. And the last best option is the Three-Eyed Tribe option, which then explains how Kid has progressed this far on this mission. It would make sense if he had someone who could read the glyphs, and that's what it seems like. With all of that said, I'm sorry I couldn't get a more in-depth analysis done this week. I hope all of you who are listening to this episode of The Last Saga really enjoyed it. People kept asking me for my predictions for chapter 1056, and each time I told them that this chapter would be unpredictable, but my expectation was that it would be iconic. And it was, for so many reasons. Like that cross-skill drop was insanity, and it got even better with the bounties. But also this chapter set up so many parallels from the 
Pluton Poseidon one, to the future Momo Vivi parallel, to oh, I didn't even talk about this one. The reason why I like Scopper Gabon as that guy is because this would parallel how Rayleigh was introduced in Sabaody. We had Law and Kid tell us about Rayleigh, in which Kid told everyone that the random scary old man was actually Dark King Silver's Rayleigh, right hand of the Pirate King. So now we might get that Scopper Gabon is the sun scarred left hand of the Pirate King. And there were so, so many other dope connections that we made in all the other calls that I had this week. In my call with BDA, he even mentioned how if you reread this chapter, you will continue to find the most minute details and connect them back in such a fun way. And by the time I recorded this, I would have talked about just this chapter for nearly 10 hours already. And each conversation, though similar and connected, brought up new and fresh points and perspectives, which just shows how much work Oda put into this chapter, but also the last two chapters. And so if you're still listening here, Look forward to all my future videos and collaborations coming up. My main content stream, again, is Parvision on YouTube, which is my One Piece Theory channel. And I believe the next video in queue is my Pluton Theory video. And so if you enjoy this podcast, consider dropping a rating and sharing the podcast with your friends or forums. I truly just enjoy talking One Piece so much so that I don't care if this really gains an audience. But I appreciate each and every one of you listening to me dumping my brain and my thoughts out because that's why I do this, to get my thoughts out. And so, like always, thank you for connecting with me, and I'm looking forward to connecting with you all on the next part vision. <laughs>